very last book of the Old Testament. <clears throat> I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, sometimes we, we're not here every week and tracking with the study in Malachi. So let me, let me just recap us for a moment. Let me just go back and maybe establish why, why do we take time studying through some old, this is an old book. It's an Old Testament prophet. It's written to a bunch of people who lived very different lives than the ones that you and I lead. They didn't look like us. Their patterns of life weren't like ours. And there were things happening here back when Malachi is writing that, that uniquely are going to touch our lives. But, but, you know, these are people who are 2,400 years ago. That's how long ago their lives were being lived. They were in a Middle Eastern setting of the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, right? There were, there were characters. This is a story here taking place that God has preserved, and there's characters involved. And the main characters are God himself and his people, and they're interacting. And we pick up a chapter here, and if you've been reading the story of God and his people, which goes back years and years before these folks, you just find that there's this this relationship that looks like this. Well, I guess God is always the same. It's the people that look like this. You know, and so we kind of, you can grab their story at any moment and you can find them drawing near to God and running away from God and drawing near to God and running away from God. Well, in this point in the story, they're in that running away from God mode. They're in that neglect of God mode. They're not, they're not in that. I don't want to make them out to be a people who all of a sudden have decided, hey, you know, they've raised their voice to God they're now God haters, you know, they just say when they talk about God, it's, you know, this to God, you know, we, we don't care anymore. It's a slow decline that's taken place over time. They're, they're a lot more like us than we might want to admit. They didn't just get out to a place, because sometimes when we read Bible stories about people that are being accused by God sometimes, we kind of can say, well, I mean, I'm so glad that's not us. I mean, I'm not that way. But these guys didn't get here instantly. There was, there was this drifting activity in their life that brought them to the place where we're going to be reading what we're reading today. Right? Ray Clinton describes Malachi and his people. He says, as Malachi addressed God's people, he faced cynicism, hypocrisy, spiritual apathy. Times were hard. He also faced a failure of leadership. Malachi confronted these problems. Priests and people were only interested in self and in what's in it for me. All right, now that phrase is helpful for me because that, that is where they were. And how many of you know that that phraseology hasn't died? When we get into the New Testament, when we get out of Malachi's moment... We get to us. Doesn't that sound like current struggles people have? What's, what's, what's in this for me? How's this going to connect with me where I am? That, that's what's going to motivate me at the end of the day. How do I want to step up and engage this whole God thing based on what I see that's in it for me? Now, what do these people, 2,400 years earlier, different, different lives, have to say to us today? Why, why study Malachi, why read this strange setting, strange words, strange customs, different, everybody's got a different last name. You had not heard some of the names on these pages here, 
right, if you just could get to know some of Malachi's pals, I mean, Malachi, you know, it was the last time you met a Malachi. You know, we didn't dedicate any Malachi's today. It's a different bunch of folks right here. But, but this is what we have as the people of God. When we open up the pages of the Bible, and you're reading this story in Malachi, you are reading an event that God hand-selected to record the details of, preserve the event, the goings-on, the details, and then serve it up for us later on. Right? This, when, you, when you think about all the things that have happened in history and you realize the Bible is only this thick, right? here's the Old Testament, that's all God chose to preserve, you realize that makes these very significant stories, doesn't it? Because there's lots of stuff that happened that God said, I'm not going to bring that up. No, we're not going to talk about that. I'm not going to mention that I did that. No, I'm not going to mention who was involved. But I want you to know this story here, this Malachi story. I want you to know that. Right? When you and I come to this, there's a passage in the New Testament that helps us when we read these kinds of stories. It ought to be helpful for us to remember this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 says, Now, these things took place as examples for us. Paul is talking about the Old Testament events that were being referenced in the New Testament. They happened as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, that's a, that's a particular event in the Old Testament. That was the style of life they had. They sat down to eat and drink and gather and party and be together and they rose up to play, right? That's the attitude. He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them way back then did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Right? And it's just a little headline event. If you want to go read about that, I invite you into the Old Testament. But there's an event that actually occurred that God superintended where sexual immorality broke out amongst his people. And next thing you know, there were 23,000 dead people. I'll let you go read the story. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Right, that's an interesting apologetic for the person of Christ right there if you're curious. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, I thought Jesus was a New Testament figure. No, he's God. He's always been. And the one that was being put to the test back in the Old Testament, it was Christ himself. We, we must not now put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So when you and I pick up this abstract story from Malachi, 435 approximately B.C., with a bunch of people we don't know living lifestyles that we can't relate to, this is why we read these stories. These stories were written down for us, that they might instruct us, they might say something to us. So here's the mystery of this book. Unlike any other book, when you, when you pick this book up to read it, it picks you up to read you. No other book does that. This is a living word of God preserved and written down by God so that 
years later, an obscure story about a bunch of people, God might use it to have it speak into our lives to say, who are you in light of this? Where are you? How does this instruct you? So important that we know, important that we heed. Take heed to what we hear, lest you too fall, just like they did. None of us are beyond the lives that these folks lived. So let's look here, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, right? Liars. Can I, can I just upgrade lying back to the level of sin? Can I do that real quick this morning? Lying is sin, right? That's who, those who speak falsely. God says, I'm actually going to show up. I'm going to visit. I'm going to pop back in. And when I do, I'm going to bring judgment on liars. Just make sure we're not getting like the world here. Those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, right? Those who take advantage of others. God says, I'm coming. And if that's you, you're going to get to meet me as a judge. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, interesting. Look, go back into verse 17 where this starts. God says, you, you've wearied me with your words. Right? And one of the things I wanted to make sure we caught as we move through this passage, through this study, is that God makes a case for himself. You want to know what God is like? This book reveals a lot, not everything, but a lot about what God is like. Did you know that God gets wearied by the words, by the attitude of people? God is affected This is a group of people who have watched decline take place in their midst. Last week we learned about God calling them faithless. You are a faithless people. You are faithless to one another. You don't honor your commitments and your responsibilities to each other. They got people divorcing one another. You got people who are just breaking agreements. Got people just not being responsible to care for those that are in your life. That's who you've become. And 
as these people have gone wayward and life has become unraveled and bad people are doing bad stuff and some are taking advantage of this one and some are taking advantage of that one, there's been a little growing attitude amongst the people that, that sort of begins to sound like this. Hmm. Well, this is God's people. This is the people God's in charge of. Huh. Well, I guess, I guess God delights in evil. I mean, look. Look what's going on around here. I guess God's good with that. Look at that guy hurting that guy. And God's, God's watching over. Isn't God sovereign? Isn't God in charge of everything? I guess he delights in people doing wrong. Where is this God of justice? He's so righteous and just. Why doesn't he show up? Why doesn't he show himself? Right, now here's the confusion. You have a group of people whose lives so are at odds with what God is like that the question gets raised, that's God's? Where, where is this God? Right? That's, that's sort of the attitude to which God now responds. Oh, you want to know? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Where is God? I'm about to show up. I'm about to show up. In your lives. Now, what I, I find interesting here, and I want to I bring the most emphasis here, is, is a pattern that I think is, is not just a pattern for Malachi, it's not just a pattern for a moment. I think it's a pattern of God doing stuff in our lives. That's why I titled this Prepared for God to Show Up. Right? These people are in a place where they're saying, Where's God? Now, listen. You might not have that same rough attitude about you. You might not be in the same place these folks are in. But, but you can be in a place that's either brought tears or it's brought confusion or it's brought lethargy or it's brought disappointment. And you can be asking the same question. Where's, where's God? You know, maybe not the God of justice, but where, where's the God of love right now in my life? Huh? Where's the God of faithfulness in my life? Where's the God of a future and a hope in my life? Because right now it doesn't feel like there's that. Okay, that's the accusation they're bringing based on their circumstances. And and maybe you and I can accuse God in some similar way. And God's response to showing up in their life is to point out two things. He highlights preparation and he highlights the action he's going to take when he shows up. God preparing and then God showing up is what gets highlighted in this passage. So let's look through that together. But let me say this just as a, a side note, uh, a necessary side note. Because, you know, we're, we're tracking through Malachi. We're studying Malachi, and we want to be faithful to Malachi. Malachi is a prophet of the Old Testament. He's sent by God to interact with a group of people who've got a bunch of stuff going wrong in their lives. He's got a lot of things to talk to them about, about really one problem that's resulted in many. The one problem they have is that they have demoted God from being great in their eyes. That's the one problem they have. But it's resulted in many problems. And so they bring bad offerings to God. They harm one another. They're greedy. There's a bunch of stuff happening in their life that God highlights. So there's a lot of correction in this book. So at some point, as you track with the study here, and hopefully you're reading Malachi on your own and you're interacting with the messages, at some point you might be tempted to say, dude, where, where's the grace in this book? 
I just hear a lot of fault finding coming from God. I hear God pointing out a bunch of broken stuff here. Where's the grace in this book? Um, it's, it's, it's almost so obvious, but it just is in a form that you and I, I don't know, we, we train ourselves not to see it. Does it strike you as gracious that God bothered to show up one more time to a people who live their lives like this and speak to them at all? Does anybody say, that's the grace of God? Or do we just say, no, 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 no. That, that, it's the grace of God because I expect that God's going to show up again in my life. That's a given. And when he shows up, if he says nice stuff, affirming things, hopeful, futuristic, really good stuff, that's gracious. Well, then maybe you and I have overlooked the most amazing thing at all. That in spite of our sin and waywardness, God shows up again. Malachi's name means messenger. So when God starts using that word messenger, he's already revealed grace to these people because he's back again. How many guys have, you, won't, you maybe won't admit this about yourself, how many guys have walked with another person over a long period of time where they continue to do the same stupid thing over and over again, right? I know you can't see that about yourself, uh, but there's these other people in our lives, you know, that... Just one stupid thing after another, yet again, it was destructive before, it's destructive again, here we go again, right? Uh, boy, in that moment, you're just not motivated to run in graciously, are you? At some moment, you just want to wash your hands and say, I'm done, I'm done with you. Listen, this is so far down the list of events that have happened this way. We get to the, isn't it interesting? We get to the end of the Old Testament. We're at the end here. And yet God is showing up again. And when he shows up again to the knucklehead people, he points to the fact that there's another day coming when I'm going to show up again. My messenger will come suddenly to his temple. Now, what event is he talking to about there? He's talking about Christ coming. My messenger will be me next time showing up again. I'm not going to send a prophet next time. I'm going to come in human form. And guess what's going to happen when I show up? You're not going to recognize me. You're not even going to give me the time of day. He came to his own and his own received him not. Can you imagine now here is God standing to a bunch of people who have yet gone wayward again, proclaiming, one, I'm here again through the prophet speaking correction for your good to bring you back to me yet again. Wait, wait, wait. I know the correction doesn't feel good, but isn't that grace? Yes, it is. And then he says, and I'm going to do it again because that's who I am to you. Remember, that's how he started the book. I've loved you. I've loved you because of Jacob. 
because I love Jacob, because of the way I am. That's, that's what I keep doing to you. I keep being gracious to you again and again and again. And I'm going to do it again. And when I send my son, there'll be a bunch of different names, a bunch of different people, but they'll be just as wayward. And their hearts will be far from me yet again. But that's not going to stop me. I'm going to send my son anyway, and he's going to show up suddenly, and he's going to be in that temple, and he's going to accomplish what needs to get accomplished for, on your behalf, even though you're not standing there waiting for it to happen in faithfulness. Right, so I know you want to ask me, well, where's the grace in this book? Do you see the grace in this book? That's incredibly gracious of God to come to us that way, Right? But there's a pattern here I want us to see. When God is about to show up, God's about to do something gracious in our life. He does something to prepare us for that. Because we need preparation for that to happen. Listen, there are some things in your life that you, you, have, to, you have to prepare for them. There's certain steps, you know, if you work in construction, you know that there's certain steps that prepare for this step. You just can't skip it. You just can't say, well, we're not going to do that because we're in a hurry. We, we just, you know, we like the way the outside of the house looks. We're just skipping that whole foundation thing because, you know, <clears throat> who sees that anyway besides the termite guy? No one sees that. So we're just going to skip that thing. We're just gonna, you know, how many of you know you'd have a severe problem on your hands today? Well, if you're not a construction person, I've got to use other illustrations besides my engineering background. Uh, my wife loves to cook, and she's an incredible cook. I almost, it's an adventure for me just to, to see her get turned loose in the kitchen because whatever it is that she's trying for the first time is going to be done like it's been done a thousand times by a, a chef. So I'm always under the adventure of, what you cooking, babe? And this is a, this is a good relationship for us because she loves to cook. I love to eat. It works really well <laughs> together. Um, but years ago, she hadn't been doing this as much lately, but years ago she got into making uh, homemade bread, homemade rolls, and, and I learned something. I, I learned things about cooking. I, I'm, I don't get all the cooking dynamics, but I, I ask her questions and annoy her and, and learn some things. So apparently when you're cooking bread or certain rolls, uh, there is this e essential preparatory activity to actually baking the bread. And, and it's that point where you, you, let, it, you let it proof Right, you, you let it rise. You let the dough rise. And, and something's going on during that preparation moment that if you decide, I'm in a hurry, we just need bread, just mix it, pop it in, you, you're, you're not going to be happy with the outcome. Having skipped that step, you're going to have problems on your hands, right? So just for those of you who want an explanation of this, this is an interesting website, cookthink.com. I like that, cookthink. I like to think and I like to eat, so that works. <clears throat> this is what they say. They say, when you let dough rise... You're giving yeast a chance to leaven the dough. This happens when fermentation produces carbon dioxide gas that puffs it up. If you don't allow your bread dough to rise, you'll end up with a heavy and disagreeable loaf. I like that. That's, that's good theology right there. Because <laughs> as with dough, so with people. Right. God does something to prepare us for what he wants to do in our lives. And listen, if you skip that step, right, you're going to end up with that. You end up with a heavy people, 
right? They're just, they're just spiritually, they're just lethargic, you know. It's like, no, I, I know I should be reading my Bible, but, you know, I just haven't. And they're not real movable. They're not willing to take steps of faith. They're not going to launch out into something of God. They're just this real sedentary, heavy, spiritual kind of person. And you're going to end up with a disagreeable loaf on your hands, right? A, a people who are complaining, contending for their own, right? They're just, they're just disagreeable, right? No one around them is doing what they need to be doing, you know. They're not doing, but they for sure know you ain't doing what you need to be doing. Just disagreeable. Right, so God needs to prepare some. See, because if God shows up in a great big way to a people who are spiritually heavy and lethargic and disagreeable and he does what he's going to do, you're not going to end up with what God had in mind at the end. Matter of fact, you're going to end up with a lot of people who totally miss completely what God had in mind. So God does something here to prepare. Right? Look in the verse 1 again. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before you. Right? So what, what kind of preparation is needed for God to show up in the people of God's lives? What kind of preparation? Well, I think it gets given away by who the messenger is. Who is this messenger? Well, we even can go into Malachi here. Look over in Malachi 4, verse 5. Speaking of this messenger, messenger it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before God shows up in this awesome, gracious, amazing moment, God's going to prepare the way. He's going to send Elijah the prophet. Well, when we get into the New Testament, we find out who this guy is. Right? Do you all remember who this messenger is? He's John the Baptist. He's this unique, bizarre individual that begins the New Testament. He's, the, he's spoken of here last in the Old Testament, and he's kind of the first character back on the scene in the New Testament. Right? Look at these passages in Luke chapter 7. Jesus commenting on John the Baptist, he says, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he says to the crowd, What then did you go out to see? Right? People in the cities had heard of this, John the Baptist, he was proclaiming a message, he was baptizing people, and, and crowds were going out. They were drawn to him. Right? Well, you see why in Malachi, why they were drawn. God was doing something, and he was preparing something. What would you go out to see, Jesus said? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare your way before you. Right? So his is a ministry of preparation for what God's about to do. Earlier in Luke, God revealed to John's parents who he would be. He says, but the angel said to him, to, to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And he will, listen, he will, what will he do? He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and 
the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Right? So God, God wants to do something in his people. But before he's going to do that, something needs to happen inside of them. Some kind of work needs to go on inside of them to prepare them to be able to receive what it is that God wants to do. What is that work? Well, when you look at John the Baptist, you look at his message. Right, what was John the Baptist? John is baptizing. What do we learn about John's baptism later in the New Testament? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That's what he was doing way out in the wilderness there, standing by a river, and people were coming out to him. He was baptizing them. He wasn't just getting them wet. He was proclaiming to them, and God was joining with him in a supernatural work of repentance, of a people whose lives were characterized by these kinds of words, a people who would turn to God. That word turn in this passage, it's the word convert. You've heard of the word conversion? That's a a good religious word that we hear. And sometimes we kind of mess it up and act like it's a bad word. It's conversion. It's a critical word. It's the word that needed to happen before God did in grace what he was planning to do. John the Baptist shows up with the ministry of God to convert people for them to be changed in their disposition toward God. He called these folks the disobedient. He was going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That word disobedient means the unpersuadable, the unwilling to be persuaded. John the Baptist is showing up, appointed and anointed by God, into people's lives who are unpersuadable. You are not moving me. I am facing this way. God is that way. I am about this. God is about that. And I'm unwilling to be moved. You will not move me. You understand why there's a need for preparation? Now, if God wants to move and doesn't care whether anybody receives it or not, well, then don't prepare anything. They're unpersuadable. You'll show up in grace, and they'll be unpersuaded, and the act will have come and gone. No one will be affected. They'll face this way at the end of the day, and God will be in that direction. But that's not God. God shows up to prepare people through John the Baptist. He shows up to bring them to a place of repentance. Right, what, what was happening out by the river there? Well, for these folks, there was a decisive moment. There was a turning point in their life. Right, you hear phrases like that. That was the turning point. Or some people just got to get to rock bottom before they come back up. Okay, this is that moment. This is what God was doing for people to find themselves in a place where at one point they rigidly are about this But now by God's grace and by the ministry through this messenger, they are about something else. They are open to something else. And interesting, Jesus starts his ministry in exactly the same place as John the Baptist started and was ministering. If you look in Matthew chapter 4, it's the first public message that Jesus preaches. He set conversations privately with a few folks. But he's going public now. And his first message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this this attitude needs to be present. God is preparing for what he wants to do, 
by establishing in a people a heart of repentance. That's the work God prepares before God shows up in our lives. What does that word repentance mean? It means this, to change the mind, to relent, right? to give up on my former position, to adopt a different attitude in life. Theologically, it involves regret or sorrow accompanied by a true change of heart toward God. Repentance is, is a hard attitude. Repentance is something that goes on in my heart. It's a change of heart. It undoes what I'm insistent on. It undoes my values. It undoes what gets me up in the morning. And, and interesting, it, it's associated with a sense of, of sorrow. Right? Why, why would I have a sense of sorrow? You know, I used to do this. You know, it's not like, you know, you're switching from... You know, total to frosted flakes, you know. I'm changing, I'm repenting of my cereal choice. There's no sorrow there. Yeah, you're changing your attitude. You're going after something different. But there's no sorrow there. In repentance, there's a sense of sorrow. Can you just track with me for a second? Why would there be a sense of sorrow? See, the, the difference is there, there's nothing wrong, and no one has been violated by me moving from Frosted Flakes to, you know, Lucky Charms or whatever. There's no violation here. When I change there, I'm not moving away from something that's a problem towards something that's right. When one repents, biblically, one is moving away from something that has been a sin against God. And he is now turning to embrace God, there's a sense of sorrow in that the one I'm now turning to is the one who I've been offending. A real God who really does matter has been offended. And so repentance involves, you know, I understand repentance is not just this uneventful thing. It's a turning point. It's, a, it's an, an event in your life where you recognize and it's not just those of us who can stand up and tell some story about, you know, how many, how much we've stolen and, and hurt people and murdered folks and, you know, we're drug addicts and we were hurting this person and that person. And, yeah, obviously those people need to repent. But, but what about the liars? Any good liars in here? Well, you know, it's just lying, Keith. And it's not like my life is really all that messed up. Oh, really? Been doing any lying? I'm serious. It was on God's list, right? When God cataloged and said, hey, when I show up for judgment, I'm going to show up for the liars. Not just coming after the, the people who are fornicated and, you know, people who are prostitutes and drug dealers and murderers. I'm not just showing up for them. I'm showing up for the people who oppress other people and take advantage of them. That's a deep offense to God. And so this sense of sorrow is an awareness that I'm turning away from a life that I have been living that has offended God, and I'm turning to him. See, this is this preparatory work that God is seeking to do. And it's a work of a heart that I want to say this. I think a repentant heart is a humble heart, and it's an adjustable heart. It's a humble heart in the simple sense of this. It recognizes who God is and who I am. I think that's, that's the basis of humility. However you want to, you know, whether you want humility to be soft and 
soft-spoken and that person's not offensive. You know, whatever you, wherever you go with humility, ultimately humility is about God being in the right place and you and I being in the right place. I finally found where I am in, in relation to God. That's humility, right? Andrew Murray, I think, says it the best that I've seen. He says, and so pride, or the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. Humility is not something that we bring to God or that he bestows. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness that comes when we see how truly God is everything. When the creature realizes that this is a place of honor and consents to be the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and manifest themselves, he sees that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position as creature and yielding to God his place. Right? That's all humility is. That's what a repentant heart toward God is. It's, it's letting God be God over life, over your life, over your tomorrow, over these circumstances that you find yourself in right now, the ones that we want to contend with God, the ones that we want to join people and weary God with our words and say, where is the God of justice or of faithfulness or of love? Where is that God? We want to contend with God. That's an arrogant heart. It's an unrepentant heart. It's not a heart turned toward God. It's a heart challenging God. See, a repentant heart... Is, is a heart that's adjustable. It's not rigidly set in place, convinced that my position is the only position and the right position. The way I am is the right way. My attitude at this moment is the right one. No, a humble heart questions. Do you question yourself? Do you question whether you're doing it right all the time? I, mean, I know when I throw in all the time, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, there's moments where I'm, I'm, I'm probably, no, I'm not doing it right. Are you uncertain? Do you have a little bit of un- instability installed inside of you to where you recognize, I, I don't know how confident I want to be in me, that I'm doing this right. I'm saying that right. I'm living that right. My priorities are right. I'm right. I was raised right. My attitude is right. My future plans are right. right that, that, that's an unrepentant heart. That's a heart that if God showed up personally, in your life, in an amazing, miraculous way, you would not receive it. Don't think for a moment that, you know, the problem with this whole equation is if God would just show up, right? If God would just show up in my life, pop into my bedroom, show up in an amazing way, then, then I'd be willing to do whatever. No, you wouldn't. You'd stand in line with Hundreds of other people in the Bible who God showed up, stood right in their face and did amazing things that blew everybody's mind. And they were unaffected. What was missing? Their hearts were not right. Wasn't that God didn't do enough? Right? You remember the Pharisees? They're going to be the ones who are going to plot to kill Jesus. They're going to be the ones who arrange a hit on the Son of God, put everything in place, bribe the right guy, put him on a cross. Now, do you remember what John the Baptist said to those guys? They came out one day to see this ministry of repentance that was taking place in the wilderness. They came out to probably go through the motions. Everybody else is doing it. We probably need to save face. And John the Baptist calls them out. And he says, you brood of vipers, who 
warned you to flee from the wrath to come. What did he say next to him? He said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You're here under the ministry of repentance? Well, we're going to see. We're going to see. We're going to see whether there's any change in your life. Because if your heart has changed, your life will change. You can't stop it. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The life is lived. So if your heart is wrong, your life will be wrong. And you won't be able to do anything about it. You can fake it like these Pharisees did, but Jesus knew in a moment. John the Baptist knew. Your heart is far from me. It doesn't really belong. It's not really repentant. And so here... God shows up in an amazing way and the Pharisees stand at the front of the line and miss everything that's happening. They don't bow down and worship the Son of God. They're not amazed at the grace of God showing up. They help crucify him because their heart was not prepared. Do you see how important it is that if God's going to show up tomorrow in my life or your life, do I have a heart that can receive from him? Or is God going to show up and I'm just going to miss it? This repentant heart was preparing the people to receive God's grace. Now, if that's true, can we theologically graduate from first grade for a moment? For a moment. If it's true that a repentant heart prepares me to receive the grace of God... Can I stop acting like a first grader and treating repentance like it's the enemy of grace? You know, like, like you, know, you know what I mean, especially when it's preached to you. Right? Theologically, I put them on paper, you don't do that. But when you get preached repentance, this is a message on repentance. And you're like, well, Keith, well, can't you preach something on grace? Do you go there? Right? You don't have to volunteer your hands this morning, but do you go there? This doesn't sound like grace. It it sounds like a requirement for me to adjust. Yeah, it is. It's a requirement to adjust so you can receive grace. Otherwise, grace is never going to touch your life. You can love the idea of grace, but it's never going to show up in your life. It's going to stay in heaven. It's going to stay on the pages of the Bible. It's going to be in somebody else's life, but you won't know what it is. Because you won't turn to God. You won't be persuaded by the grace of God. You won't be willing to receive the grace of God. Because the heart attitude inside of us is an unrepentant one. It's proud. And so, this is a gracious thing going on right here. This preparation to receive. Listen, I I don't know. I can't take a survey in this moment. But I would wonder... How many of us are missing out on the grace of God because we're not prepared to receive it? The work of preparing us to be humble and receptive and turn to God isn't there. But we want God to show up big. We might even be accusing him of why he hasn't been. I think I'll put this in your outline. Without a heart of repentance, you'll never be interested or motivated or open to receive God's gracious gift. You are unpersuadable. You'll be a heavy and disagreeable loaf when God's grace comes. I mean, we're on the verge here. This is a prophecy about the day that God does the ultimate 
most gracious thing in human history. There's never a moment that's going to exceed this moment where the Son of God is going to put on humanity, be rejected by men, crucified on a cross. He's going to embrace it all, shed his own blood in order to restore people to God. There's never going to be a more gracious moment than that one. God is about to do the, the ultimate most gracious thing. God is about to meet the ultimate need in our lives, and he's about to make the ultimate sacrifice. And what does he do right before he does that? He prepares us to receive by sending a messenger and by creating a moment where repentance, turning to God, is what is characteristic of who we are. Let me just make the second point briefly. I won't spend much time on it because I I want us to stay in that first point. God's going to show up here in a moment. There's an accusation about God is, God's gone. Where's God? Who's ruling this place? Where is he? Where is this God of justice? God says, I'm going to suddenly show up. But what's interesting here is when he's going to suddenly show up, Malachi describes him a certain way. When he shows up, he's going to be like what? A refining fire. That's what God's going to be like when he shows up, according to Malachi, who's helping us to understand his God and ours. Now, what is God and what is he like and how does he treat people? I mean, what's God really like? Who is he? What's he going to do in your life or somebody else's life? All right, everybody's got an opinion about that, right? Okay, I'm some... I'm some dude from Metairie. Call me Metairie Mike. Um, I'm like everybody else from Metairie. I grew up somewhere in the New Orleans area. I shop at Walmart. Uh, I work 45 hours a week. I own two cars and a house. I graduated after five and a half years from LSU with a degree that I'm probably not really using right now in my business practices. Um, I like to watch a lot of sports. I like to wander into the woods on the weekends and kill stuff. Um, I, I like to read sparingly the sports page. And, and, oh, by the way, I have opinions about a lot of stuff, and one of them happens to be about God. So I'm going to tell you what I think God is like, what he's going to do in your life, what he won't do, how he'll treat people. Right? I'm, I'm going to turn from uh, Metairie Mike to Mike the theologian now, and I'm going to have a big opinion about God. Anybody know Metairie Mike? Yeah. And then you got this guy named Malachi. He's not from Metairie. He's from a place you've never heard of. And, but he's a prophet of God, and he's anointed by God, and God actually puts his words in his mouth, and Malachi has an opinion about God. All right, now my question to you is maybe you are Metairie Mike. Are you going to keep listening to Metairie Mike? Or do you want to just listen for a moment to Malachi? Malachi is trying to tell you God's going to show up in your life. Now, when he shows up in your life, you're wondering where he is? When he shows up, he's going to be a refining fire. That's what you're going to encounter. Now, how many of us wonder if we've, if we've had Metairie Mike paint a picture for us, we're staring down Metairie Mike Avenue looking for God to show up the way Metairie Mike's described God. So we're just waiting. Come on, God. Come on, God. And by the way, for Mary Mike's God to show up, there's, there's no preparation of repentance involved. 
I, get, I just keep living the life I've been living, the way I've been living it, for the values that I've had my whole life, because I'm from Metairie. I'm not that bad a person, for goodness sake. God could not possibly be having his nose out of joint over me. So I'm staring down Metairie Mike Avenue, waiting for God to come, waiting for God to show up. But the problem is God's traveling into my life down Malachi Road, and I don't see him coming I don't know what he sounds like. I don't have a clue as to how to connect with this God because I've been shopping at Walmart and hanging out with Metairie Mike and listening to his ideas. And I agree with him. Heck, he and I grew up together. We went to grammar school together. I think just like him. Hey, well, that's all right. But these words were written down. I don't know where he got his words, but these were written down to instruct us about who God really is and what he's like. So here comes God, and when he shows up in your life, are you ready for him to show up like a refining fire? You recognize that sense of refining fire is God. That's God. He's showing up. You're wondering where he's been. Well, he's there, and he's a refining fire in our lives. But what does it reveal to us for God to be a refining fire? Let me just give you a couple quick thoughts on this. First thing it reveals that when God shows up in your life as a refining fire, it tells you that God has a purpose. God shows up at your door, he's up to something. Right where I live, I live in Destrehan. I live a few uh, miles from an oil refinery, a couple of them. How many guys, you know, you're driving down River Road, and you've got you to be near the river to see an oil refinery. So you're driving down River Road, you're either in Chalmette, you're up, up the river. And you drive past this massive plant with all of its pipes and stuff. And there's a levee here and there's pipes running over it. And trucks are coming out of this place. How many guys drive past that and you just kind of go, that's probably just a random process happening there. It's, you know, who knows what's going on 24-7 there. Just a bunch of pipes and heat and pressure. Who knows, right? Probably nothing. It's meaningless. There's nothing happening there. Or when you drive by, do you recognize that place was intricately designed? Every detail was designed, put in place with a purpose. Right? If you're, if you're driving down the riverside, <clears throat> these pipes coming over, hauling this gunk, this sludge, that stuff that came out of the BP oil spill and just kind of went all over the place, that gooky, that's what's coming in. You drive down the airline highway side, you get to watch the trucks pulling out, going to the gas station with this stuff you put in your gas tank. It doesn't look anything like what went into that plant. That plant was designed with a purpose in mind. It was after one thing, the end product of a refinery. That's what it wanted. That's why every pipe is there. None of it's there by accident. That's why every pressure vessel, every amount of heat is being spent in that place. So that on the other side of that, out of that's going to come a product. Listen, when God shows up in your life, he's a refining fire. He has something in mind for your life. Out of the other side of what he's doing in your life, something's going to come out. There's a product that God has in mind. It may not be the product you have in mind. It may not be what you've been aiming your life at, but it's what God is aiming your life at. Everything about your life is designed specifically by God for you to have that end product come out of your life. Everything. 
the season of life that you find yourself in, that you've traveled through, single person, married person, divorced person, everything. This, the time in which you and I live that God chose for you to live in 2012 in suburban America, everything. The relational structures that make up your life with the particular people that are in those relational structures. Your particular husband and wife, your particular parents, your particular children. Every one of those things. Your strengths and weaknesses, the fact that you're right-handed or left-handed, that you can think fast or can't, that you love to write or you like math. Everything about you. There's not a wasted pipe in your life. God is a refining fire. Everything, everything is about getting the end product that God wants. Now, does anybody know what that end product is? The Bible clearly says it. The Bible started with the end product. And ever since the fall of humanity, God has been getting the junk out to restore the end product. Do you know, what, do you know why you were created? Let us make man in our image. Don't ever lose that word. If you want to understand why you exist, it's the most important word in the Bible. You and I were created to be the image of God upon this earth. I, I can't tell you why exactly God chose to do that. I don't know why he just didn't have his own image in a different way in one location. He showed up uniquely. There it is. But that's not what he did. And since God's infinitely wise, I don't question him on that one. He created something unique where this invisible God would uniquely take on visibility through the creatures called man that he made. And he would be imaged into the world. And since sin came and messed all that up, God is now at work conforming us to the image of Christ. That, that's the end product. That's what God's after. You and I come in like a bunch of gook off the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. Sludgy and slimy, and God goes to work in his purpose that when he's done with us, the image of Christ is seen. God is a refining fire. When God shows up in your life, listen, this is why so many people miss Christianity. They're, you know, they're waiting for Metairie Mike's God to come showing up, and Metairie Mike's God just wants to make them better at what they already are. He just, he just likes to say nice stuff. Well, Metairie Mike's God's a nice God. He's a gracious God. He's not going to correct you so much. He's going to leave you just like you are. Really? But Mary Mike's God's got no purpose for your life. He's just coming alongside whatever purpose you invented for your life. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible shows up in your life with an agenda. He wants to restore what the fall took away. The image of God through your life, it's the highest calling, it's the greatest calling that you and I could ever have. And that's what he's doing. He shows up like a refining fire. So the fact that God is a refining fire tells you that your life has a purpose. God is showing up in your life to fulfill the purpose that you have as a human being. All right, two quick thoughts and then we're going to pray. It shows that the process of life is being monitored and controlled. If God is a refining fire, remember, he, he's, he's not an accidental house fire. right? He's, he's not a New Orleans East swamp fire. right? It's just burning out of control. Nobody knows where this thing's going to go. Nobody knows what it's going to consume. You're just standing at the curb watching the house go to the ground. 
Smoke and flames. Oh, everything we own, it's out of control. Our lives are being destroyed. God's not an accidental house fire. God's a refining fire. Right? That means everything about his fire is under control. It's purposeful. It's specific. It's aimed a particular way. That's a good thing to remember. Last thing, at God's refining fire, it tells us that the heat will not destroy or consume me, but it will destroy what pollutes me. That's why the heat is the heat. God shows up in a refining way to burn off, to separate. That's what the heat does. The heat serves to separate. That's why gold and silver comes as this lump. It's put into the fire. The heat melts it. So immediately, right, you got preparation going on here, right? you got melting taking place. You're becoming fluid. You're not stiff and rigid and hard and uncontrollable. You're soft now. God, the heat has done that to you. And these impurities begin to surface. The the refiner would begin to skim them off, or the heat itself would actually burn them off. The alloy would get consumed. But here's the good news. At the end of the process, the gold will still be there. It will not be destroyed. The refining process is not designed to destroy the gold. It's designed to bring it out. So take heart in this, because I know some of us feel like sometimes we're in the fire and we're getting toasted and roasted, and there's going to be nothing left of me when this is over. Here's the good news. If you started out as four ounces of gold, when God's done with you, you're going to be four ounces of gold. You will not be consumed. You will not be destroyed. God is a refining fire. Now, what's going to be gone is the impurities that were attaching themselves to us. That's what's getting burned off and removed. Listen, God wants to show up in your life. Let me go ahead and ask Kurt if he would come. God wants to show up. God is still this God who, when you and I accuse God of being distant, of not being involved, and we start asking, God, where are you? The grace of God has God communicating with us and promising God's going to show up. God is going to show up. God wants to show up now in our lives. God wants to show up next week in your life. But, but here's what I don't want us to skate past. Are, are you prepared for God to show up? It's, it's nice to like the idea that God would show up graciously in my life. Are, are you prepared for God to show up? Is, is your heart humble, adjustable, Is there this atmosphere of repentance in your heart? Is your heart turned to God this morning? Listen, I can preach the grace of God, but if our hearts won't receive the grace of God, then to us it's not grace at all. It's foreign. Let's see if we can ask God to help us this morning. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you that as we read this story, you are still God. 
Malachi's God. You're still our God. We're still your people. And you still suddenly come to us as a refining fire in our lives. But Lord, we don't want to be a people who, like so many others in the word of God, miss the day of your coming. We don't notice that your grace has come in abundance to us. For our heart is not turned to you. Lord, I pray right now, in an amazing way, you would engage our hearts. You would, you would test our hearts, Lord. You would let us know where my heart is. Is my heart turned to God? Is my heart broken and movable before God? Can God adjust my attitude this morning? In the categories that matter to me and the ones that I contend for and the ones that I struggle to be forgiving in or the the ones that I'm really ambitious for. I've got to have that. That's critical to my life. I've got to have that relationship. I've got to get that job promotion. I'm stressing out. I'm freaking out because I've got to have. Is there an adjustable attitude in my heart to be able to to say, no, my, my heart is toward God. I'm willing to do whatever God has for my life. I'm willing to obey him. I'm willing to give him my life. I'm willing to be changed. I'm willing to let him be boss. I'm willing to turn from my way to his way. I'm willing to turn from trusting my money or my looks or my influence or my family name. I'm willing to turn from my background and my people and to turn to God. My heart is open to God that way. I am I'm willing this morning. Listen, I believe there's folks here that God wants to do things in your life. God has been showing up in your life. And there have been moments of incredible grace that have gone untasted by you. You have searched for God to be seen in your eyes as faithful to you. And he has shown up as faithful and you didn't see it because your heart was turned away from him. He came and you didn't recognize him. So if you're here this morning and you're recognizing, God, I am missing out on you showing up in my life because my heart is not humble. It's not turned to you. It's not adjustable. I want to ask you to do something this morning. I want you to engage God in this moment. Not just me, not just this meeting, but God being personal with you. God using your name. God reminding you of just last week. Oh, God, what's he bringing to mind about this season, the last couple of months, what things have been going on? Where has your heart been stubborn, resistant, hostile to God, feeling like God's not showing up the way he should? You're angry. Maybe you're so disappointed. You're just on the verge of being depressed. So right now, this morning, God wants to prepare you for him to show up. God wants to make a place 
in your heart for him to show up in an amazing way. And I want to invite you to receive that place. I want to invite you this morning to just to come make a place of prayer. You know, John the Baptist set up outside the city. And there he was all out there by himself and people came to him. People traveled along the road. People watched people on their way to be with John the Baptist. I bet they wondered. Maybe they conversed. What's up with that guy? wonder why he's going out to see John the Baptist. What's going on with him that he needs to visit John the Baptist and repent? So that didn't stop John the Baptist. He didn't do it in private. He did it in public. So that's not even your concern this morning. Your concern is to be nuts for God. Your concern is to run toward God. Your concern is to abandon where you are. Your concern is to turn to God. If that's where you are this morning, come pray. Come find a place up here. Come say, God, my heart needs to be more responsive. Lord, I'm resisting. I just sense it in me. I'm resisting, Lord. There's an unwillingness in me. But God, your grace is available. Lord, your grace is available this morning. God, no matter how stubborn I've been, Lord, I'm here in this morning and something in me is saying yes, yes, even though it's been a long time and maybe you haven't responded to God in a long time. This morning, something in your heart is saying, yes, God, I want to respond to you. Lord, I I want my heart to be open. I want to be postured to receive what you want to do in my life in the future. Listen, wrestle through where you are. Wrestle through where you are. Come. God will meet you in this place. If there's there's a bit of you that's saying, "I, I, I want to move, that's God already at work. Have faith that he'll complete what he started. He'll take you where you are, and he'll be faithful to you. He'll give you desires in your heart to continue to grow and be changed. Listen, listen. Some of, some of you right now, you'd say, hey, stiff and resistive has characterized me. Unresponsive and distant have been words familiar to my heart. Listen, whatever it is that you wanted to hear this morning, why'd you come today? What message were you hoping to hear today? Do you understand if your heart hadn't had this work done in it, it wouldn't matter what we preached on today. You would not have received it. God would have been gracious. God would have been powerful. God would have been effective, and you would have been unaffected. God is preparing your life this morning. I think there's some folks that are here that you've never come to that turning point in your life. You've never come there. I'm not saying you're not religious. I'm not saying you don't know a few things. But you've never come to a turning point in your life where you come before God and you repent with sorrow to say, God, my life has been lived my way. And I recognize this morning you my life. Listen, if that's where you are this morning, I want to invite you to respond to God right where you are. Maybe you can come forward and find a place to pray. Make this this a significant event. It's a significant event. This This was February 1979 for me. This was defining moment. It was the moment where I recognized the title deed of my life was mine to turn it over to God. Listen, if you're here this morning and 
you look on that title deed and it's your name that owns your life, you've never repented. Not this way. But you can. This morning, you can turn to God in repentance and say, God, here, Lord, I'm, I'm signing my life over. Here, it's, it's your, I'm turning to you, God. I'm, I'm not going to do my life my way. I want to do it your way. You lead me from this moment on. I want to know my life is in your hands. It belongs to you. Listen, you know why you can do that this morning? Because that messenger who was going to come, that Jesus Christ who was going to come, he was coming so that right now this morning there would be no obstacle between you and God. You could come to God. He would remove the wall, the barrier. By his own blood being shed, he would grant you forgiveness if you would come to him in faith. That messenger spoken of 2,400 years ago in this passage is Jesus Christ himself right now standing and saying, come to me. You come to me and I'll receive you this morning. So if you're here and you want to turn to God that way, come, come find a place up here. Come find, look at you got 50 people up here praying, seeking God. You won't be any weirder than they. You'll be weird, but you won't be weirder than any of them. And God will meet you. Let's pray and I'm going to let Kurt lead us and close us. Father, I thank you for... I thank you for your ways, Lord, and we don't invent them, we don't create them, we just learn them. And Lord, today we learn you are a God who prepares us to come with grace as a refining fire in our life, Lord, to return to us the very purpose for our lives. And you're insistent on doing that. And you send a messenger, a message before the day of your coming to prepare us to be able to receive. God, I pray for an outpouring of preparation this morning. God, prepare us. God, prepare these folks responding this morning, recognizing my my heart needs to be in a better place. My heart needs to be adjusted. My heart needs to be one of faith and anticipating God. I need to be looking down the avenue of Him coming. God, would you meet this morning those who are responding right here. God, would you soften up the hard places, the resistive places, places, the places where faith has just evaporated. Lord, it's just, it's just been a long season. It's been a trying, difficult time. And these folks have become wearied. But Lord, they're here yet again turning to you to receive from you this morning. God, pour out grace. Church, just begin to pray for these guys. Every one of us have been where they are. We've been there. God, begin to pour out your grace. Begin to pray for them. Begin to ask God for a new day. Lord, a fresh day, a day when there's a turning point. Lord, may it be that this morning is a turning point, a meeting in the wilderness to change the future, to receive days of grace in the days to come. The outpouring of what you want to do in their lives, unrestricted, flowing into every category, relationships and attitudes and health. Lord, all those places in the future being touched because you are meeting folks as they turn to you and stop resisting. Stop resisting. Tell God you're, you're no longer resisting. Just tell him that. Lord, I'm no longer resisting, God. I'm no longer going to put up a fight. Lord, I'm, I'm willing. This morning, God, I'm willing. My heart is open. Lord, adjust me. Move me. Place me where you want me to be. My heart is open. Just begin to tell God that. Begin to pray and let God do that.